0: Well, hello and welcome to Sugar Week Conversations presented by S&P Global. Uh, my name is Paul Markwell and I'm joined by three of our top researchers and thought leaders Kevin Byrne, Eleanor Kramaz, and Yueja Peng. And today we'll be speaking about the state of play of carbon management in the energy industry. And by carbon management, we mean on the one hand, emissions abatement, decarbonizing portfolios and operations through reducing emissions and associated energy chains, and also carbon removal, uh, addressing climate change more broadly through nature-based solutions. we will mainly provide a perspective from the point of view of the oil and gas industry, given that. Directly or indirectly, it's one of the largest contributors to emissions. And anyway, since it's a significant source of innovation and investment in carbon management, and given that oil and gas players have got ambitious goals for uh, reducing methane flaring or net zero overall across their energy portfolios. But we'll keep in mind that uh, the carbon abatement solutions and particularly the removal solutions are also relevant across the whole energy industry. And of course, across energy consuming industries more broadly. So some key aspects then, which I think uh, the team should discuss today. Uh, We'll talk a bit about the options available to manage carbon and how the industry players can and, and are actually prioritizing their efforts. We talk about the state of play and the readiness of abatement technologies or solutions, meaning, you know, methane production, CCS, and so on. Uh, and likewise, the state of play and the role of the removal solutions, nature-based solutions uh, in the mix. And I think an important part is we'll talk about the enablers. So what is it that the oil and gas industry needs to really accelerate their decarbonisation efforts around technology finance policy market signals and so on uh, now some other uh, series of conversations will cover some other industries perhaps power agriculture and and certainly policy development but policy will come up today as well and we'll come we'll come back to that. But um, so this is quite a amorphous uh, kind of multifaceted topic. I think, um, Kevin, if you don't mind, do you, do you want to help us think through how would you frame what the options really are for oil and gas players uh, in terms of carbon management?
1: Sure. And thanks for having me. When I think about it, I think about oil and gas companies being on a journey, much like transition itself. Ultimately, if you think about it, they're really only facing if I pivot a little bit and think about upstream operators, they're really really facing three levers that they have. And I should mention, we've seen a, an acceleration and an expansion uh, in the development of human capital within these companies um, in terms of hiring and building out energy transition teams and decarbonization teams of various names and facets. But ultimately, there's three things that they face over and through the transition. The first thing they face is to fix and decarbonize the assets they have we see companies investing in operational improvements, decarbonization opportunities, large scale, small scale and efficiencies. And these vary by resource in terms of the opportunities. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The second thing they can do is they can shift and divest and turn their portfolio internally over. And I'm saying stay in oil and gas, but they're changing and hydrating amongst it. You also have to think about the oil and gas assets have a natural life, they naturally decline. So they think of plans to wind down assets that may be more mature in their portfolio and more mature assets tend to be higher carbon intensive. And they also look at the potential of divesting and shifting their portfolio. And we've seen movements from oil to gas, for example, gas being seen as potentially having a longer life than oil. And then the third thing they can do is pivot or dilute their portfolio by pivoting and investing in renewables. We see different mixes of these strategies globally. Um, They vary somewhat by geography, by, by company makeup, whether they're upstream or integrated or whether they're private or public or large integrated companies. However, I think the one common theme that's throughout that we see is a focus on that decarbonization, that fixing and improving the assets. Um, when we think about that, we think about companies being on a journey of understanding that. The First, they need to understand their portfolio emissions and the competitiveness of their assets from a carbon perspective across the spectrum of the things they invest in. They have to understand the implications of the emissions uh, and where and why they occur. You think about the fuels use, and that provides opportunities to think about swapping that out. And then we, you, think, you think of swapping those fuels, higher carbon fuels for lower carbon fuels or renewables. And then we see them setting targets. And depending on where you are in that value chain, you may be thinking about your direct scope one emissions, the things in your immediate control. And you may be also thinking at those value chain emissions as those products leave your plant gate and go on to a secondary life. I think when you think about um, decarbonization of upstream and midstream and downstream oil and gas assets, it's important to recognize there is no one size fits all solution. Certainly, we're seeing a lot of attention right now in electrification. Electrification is probably good for near shore, offshore, uh, onshore uh, drilling and completions. But in other places where they require high thermal content, for example, you, um, in, to, in their extraction process, you can think of heavy oil. Electrification may not be a solution. You see them looking for other technologies. So I think just to summarize, Paul, it is a journey. These are, there's no one actor that's quite alike. But ultimately, the levers these companies will pull through transition are quite similar. And the technologies then they have to use are the, then going to be distinct to their own portfolio and the own opportunities they see through time.
0: That's great, Kevin. So I think we'll we'll obviously dive into the uh, I take on board what you said about the portfolio choices and aspects. But I think today we'll probably talk more about the tech the uh, the actual technologies. But before we do that, the one thing that you haven't brought up is if if you like the the kind of the, the whole question around offsets and this this ties in with the nature based solutions. And I'm sure Uasia can jump in here, but you know, nature-based solutions, Uasia, is that is that like a last resort? I mean, what? How do you how do you think about those in this context?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Paul. So. Um, I think, in terms of uh, framing this a little bit, uh, we have um, the concept of nature-based solutions is related to um, offsets, but those are fairly uh, separate concepts, although they're related. So, you know, when we talk about nature-based solutions, it's really important to bear in mind that you know nature is is actually a very big and highly effective uh, carbon sink. And for us to get to net zero by 2050, we really need all the tools in the box to get get us there. And, and that really includes nature and making the most of it. Um, and I hope to talk about some of that potential later on. Um, offset is, is a different topic. Um, it is the trading of emissions when it has been the, uh, reduced or removed somewhere else, potentially by somebody else. Um, And then you can go and make a claim of some kind. And it's this claim part that gets tricky and complex and can cause uh, problems. I'm sure um, you've heard some of the negative coverage around the offsetting. Um, but I would argue that some of these uh, accusations don't really reflect the full picture um, of what's really going on. And I think it's still a space where companies can play a positive role. So I hope to come back to, to this topic later on.
0: Yeah, that's great. We'll certainly come We'll certainly come back to those. I think also the nature-based solutions is of great relevance across all industries in a way. So I think we should come back to it uh, after we talked a bit about some technologies. Um, and I think one other thing, um, in, in terms of just the framing, before we get into the technology, and, and Eleanor, maybe maybe you can help here. But obviously, the um, or obviously, as we as many of us in the industry recognise the, uh, in the US in particular, the Inflation Reduction Act has had a, a huge impact, really across the the landscape. Let's say of what makes sense for. Uh, Uh, low-carbon technologies in general. So, Eleanor, maybe before we get into the specifics of what companies are doing and how they prioritize, how how would you describe the impact of that that act on our conversation today? I mean, obviously, it's a US-focused, you know, uh, policy, but, uh, you know, maybe it has global implications as well.
3: Yes, I mean, the IRA is a set of tax credit and loans that are meant to really jumpstart the low carbon economy and increase security uh, of supply in the U.S. primarily. But you know, I think if we take a step back and we look at how renewables were, was really started, that was also localized incentive that then jumpstart the global economy of renewables. So you know, I think we're expecting a lot of change globally, even though you know, it is a U.S. policy. I think what is is extremely interesting is you know it, it covers a, a huge spam of of technology of, of clean technology so renewables of course is still in the mix uh, but you also have clean hydrogen nuclear geothermal CCUS uh, direct air capture is is a separate one as well sustainable fuels EVs uh, and also transmission in general and so the other kind of novelty aspect of uh, this bill. Is also the fact that it's going to promote a sustainable transition, what they call sustainable transition. So essentially offering bonuses to low-income community and prioritizing the build-out of local supply chain. So you know that break of global supply chain to local supply chain, linked with obviously energy security that you know we all kind of focused on right now. So frankly, it changes the landscape dramatically for the US, but it changes. In my mind, at least, at least for, for some of these technologies, such as hydrogen, probably the landscape globally as well, as we will see a lot more scale coming up.
0: Yeah, so I think it's worth keeping in mind when we talk about what what makes we'll come on to you know what can accelerate uh, the energy transition or new technologies. That's a global question, and we can maybe reflect a bit like, again on the, how it will be influenced by policies such as the the uh, the IRA. But, but staying with you, um, I don't know, you, you work with a lot of companies in terms of uh, thinking or ha- helping them think through how to prioritise uh, decarbonisation efforts, carbon management efforts. So um, what do you think, how would you describe the biggest bets that companies are making or, or how, in any way, how they prioritise their, their efforts?
3: Okay, so if you uh, recap it laid on, on the on the framework from Kevin, so you have the improved efficiency of assets. And uh, there we're really looking, I think that's that's kind of common across all companies, except that it starts with the assets that the companies actually have. And so I think what is interesting is, you know, we have those uh, marginal abatement cost curve that run at uh, the global level, sometimes or at the country level, but really we're looking at Marginal abatement cost curve at the asset level, and so you know at times when you look at different strategy, it's also driven because the asset base of the company is pretty different from one company to the next. So they will be looking at the left hand side of those MAC curves, uh, and and those solutions are, are pretty different from one asset base to the next. Um, you know, I think methane is is obviously a key one, right, and. And that's not just important in terms of, you know, I think it's it's hugely important in terms of impact on emission because it's a short-term impact that is tremendous, but it, it's also essentially a way for the oil and gas to get a seat at the table because they have the technology tool set and they've started that journey, especially when you look at the IOCs and some of the US independents at uh, lowering methane and uh, flaring relatively dramatically in some regions. And so they're looking at uh, applying that globally, especially when you're looking at the current gas price. Uh, I think that that's a key aspect of that that is changing everything besides the IRA, of course, right? Um, Then you're looking, you know, Kevin mentioned that third level level, which is the investment in new lines of business. And that's pretty much focused on, you know, CCUS, on direct air capture, like where we're seeing, for instance, Oxyplane, uh, but also on hydrogen, so I think the companies are feeling that they have enough uh, transferable skills to essentially play a role in an economy such as hydrogen, which will require a dramatic change in the energy system as a whole. Right? So I think those are those are essentially what are, are, are driving, so you have a lot of commonalities, and then you have a lot of specific options that are targeted towards the asset base of, of the companies. Uh, they're all in, in completely different states, of course. Of, of they're in completely
0: different states. So if you took something like flaring reduction, maybe you bundle that with uh, with methane reduction, as like an operational kind of measure. And where would you place, um, I mean, a lot of energy companies, oil, you know, traditional oil and gas companies also into hydrogen, where do you place that? Is that? That's a different technology to CCS, but how do you think they're prioritizing that?
3: No, I think everyone is looking at hydrogen again because of the transferable skills of of you know their capabilities. Uh, I think it's you know it, it's definitely not the same as as methane and, and flaring, you know, in the sense that methane and flaring you deal with it once, and it's <laughs> relatively, I mean improved, I would say. Uh, the hydrogen is is a really long time coming. Um, you have you know until now, you know we were talking a lot in the US, especially about uh, those hub development. But, uh, you know, that was, I think, the understanding was that that was probably not going to be enough. It's a massive chicken and egg problem. I mean, think about the very, very beginning of the natural gas market, for instance. Uh, You know, you might have the production, even though that's not mature, we need scale to drive the cost down. In fact, uh, you know, at SP we're expecting costs of green hydrogen to go down the cost, like by 50% by 2040. Uh, but then we have the full middle part, right? And that's the same for CCUS, essentially. We need the infrastructure built out. Uh, we've been talking a lot about conversion of pipeline, but a lot of my clients are skeptical about that, uh, given the, the nature of the molecule. Um, and so, essentially, it's, it's a rebuild of of the economy, of the of the energy economy. To make hydrogen work, and in certain expects CCUS as well
0: great so a lot of a lot of different technology i mean there's many that we're, we're not covering i mean today we have a very short time but i i, I can imagine we could have a whole session on biofuels and, and other types of uh, energy saving fuels and stuff but um but i think that gives us a, a great sense we'll come back to to that um i want to turn again to the nature based solutions that a new age you can you can come in again because this is a bit different isn't it this is not uh, Oil companies changing, uh, energy companies actually changing their their operations. It's it's almost a separate uh, a separate topic. Um, so how do you how important do you think are nature based solutions uh, in the mix here from the energy companies' point of view? And maybe you can elaborate a bit on some of the challenges that you talked about just now.
2: Yes, absolutely. So um, I think. Um, When you talk about the potential part um, maybe we'll just uh, quickly discuss you know what is the potential of nature-based solutions and what's happening at the moment in the marketplace and also the diverse set of um, solutions in in place and then we can go on to talk about some of the challenges and how they're being addressed. Um, So in terms of potential we um, there's there's lots of different uh, numbers being quoted and I've and, and certainly a very large uncertainty range involved, but I've seen numbers ranging between 2 billion, potential of 2 billion um, tons a year uh, in mitigation potential coming from uh, protection and restoration of forests to 15 billion tons a year addressing all land sinks and agricultures and oceans. So, so that's a big range, but those are not small numbers. Um, And certainly there are more studies need to be done to understand some of the fuller potentials of these natural carbon sinks. And what's happening at the moment is that, you know, on the voluntary carbon market we're seeing a lot of um, these nature-based solutions credits being traded, um, largely under the forestry and land use category. So last year in 2021, um, tradings on the VCM uh, have reached record levels. So um, I think the volumes reached about 500 million tons, um, which is about two and a half times to compare to the year before. And value has has reached almost $2 billion, um, which is four times as much as 2020. Um, And uh, uh, forestry and land use is now the biggest category under those traded, so you're looking at about investors and companies uh, putting about $1.3 billion into these credits in that category, a large portion of which would be nature-based solutions. So, so it's really interesting Um, and one of the reasons, there there are several reasons why it's so popular, Um, you know, many people like nature, it's got a feel good factor that we like to be involved in. Um, And also uh, nature based solutions can deliver additional benefits beyond mitigation potential things like biodiversity uh, pollution reduction cleaner water and some of the sustainable development goals so. Um, And in terms of what project types, there are it's it's actually a very diverse space when you look into nature based solutions, Um, some of the uh, solutions are as old as the hills um, like forest and um, coastal region conservation um, things like planting trees. Uh, protecting mangroves, those are very established and very mature project types. Then you got newer uh, initiatives, things like um, enhanced weathering which can go with agriculture as well as large uh, uh, forestry landscapes um, where you increase the intake of carbon from different um, soil surfaces. And also blue carbon, that's something of great interest to a lot of investors. Um, looking at water and ocean-based environments and how to use uh, those to sink carb- carbon. So like things like seaweed and kelp farming, that's really um, being picked up on, on numerous uh, developers. Um, so yeah, really interesting and diverse and fast-moving space to keep an eye on.
0: Yeah, so uh, lots, of, yeah lots of new new tech, uh, new technology, if you, if you can call it that, new types of sinks anyway for, for carbon. And, um now you mentioned the the challenges really on um you know uh reporting or, or proving I think quality how, how what's being addressed what's being done then to address that
2: yeah there has been um, a number of challenges to overcome um but uh, I would just emphasize that there, there, in the voluntary carbon space, there are actually a lot of measures already in place to address concerns with about quality, about legitimacy of some of these projects and credit supply types. Um, but most importantly, recently, there's been two major initiatives uh, across, across the economy, in, including many different stakeholders, uh, to look at what would constitute market integrity in this space. So on the supply side, You've got the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market that's coming up with guidelines on what what constitutes a quality credit. So what is a good credit that you you should buy? And then on the demand side, importantly for many of our clients, is um, an initiative by the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative that is trying to bring in a agreed guideline on what can or should companies claim when they engage in the voluntary carbon market sector. So, when they buy um, credits and what can they claim in terms of offsets. So, that's quite important because a lot of the disputes under and, and scrutiny board uh, forward by various um, outlets that you, have, you may have seen is around what companies can say. Uh, when it comes to offset so that will give a lot more clarity and bring people together on this topic.
0: Great so things are uh, things are getting done then to to uh yeah upgrade the uh the clarity make it clearer let's say what's what's possible with nature-based solutions um so Kevin coming back to your your framework and particularly the the direct effort, the direct efforts to directly reduce carbon in operations or, or you know, in, in the supply chain as well. Um, we've heard that nature-based solutions are tightening up their their story, their act, if you like. Um, what do you think the industry needs to see uh, to make it clearer or, or to accelerate really decarbonisation efforts at the core of the of the operations? How would you describe that?
1: Maybe I'll take a slightly larger lens on this question, Paul. I, I think first and foremost, we are seeing a material acceleration within the companies uh, in the oil and gas space. You know, they're staffing up, they're building up, they're testing technology, they're testing different technologies at scale, and they're doing feed studies in larger, larger scale kind of decarbonization projects. But if I take a step back, I think ultimately making these bigger projects go forward, these kind of step out CCS kind of projects happen, we need more, I think that the financial community is looking for more clarity. And I think generally the markets are looking for clarity on trying to understand and incorporate the implications of greenhouse gas pollution into business decisions. So incorporating understanding of the relative carbon competitiveness of different assets or different commodities and influencing the valuations of those commodities and assets as a result to drive investment decisions and behavior. And so ultimately it's about incorporation of this metric into the business. Um, I don't think this has happened yet, at least through the available information through corporate disclosure, because there's still subtle differences in in what is being disclosed that really limits the comparability or the consistency of what's being provided to the market, and thus the comparability. This is leading third parties into the space. S&P Global is one of those third parties in terms of trying to get their handle, handle around the various relative greenhouse gas intensity from assets through to commodities. I think in the interim, investors and companies are really looking to governments for those price signals still, uh, like carbon pricing. Um, But as we know, few countries actually have a carbon price in the upstream, which leaves some gaps and incentives uh, around the world in terms of unevenness. Um, For those that do have a carbon price, um, the carbon price may still be too weak for those larger scale projects. Although it may be expected to go increase in the future, it's very difficult to make large scale significant financial decisions on the promise of some price increasing that is subject to policy, government policy. It's inherently uncertain. So it makes it hard to make those investment decisions and is likely contributing to delays of some of those larger scale projects. Um, I, you know, Paul, if it's okay, I wouldn't mind tossing this over to Eleanor because I know she's done a lot of work directly with a number of different, quite a broad range of clients. In the transactions, Eleanor, you've been working on, um, How do you, how have the investors been thinking about these kind of, I'd say, larger scale projects, but I don't want to script you too much.
3: I mean, on the larger scale projects, so really I would say, you know, on the wide hand side of the marginal abatement cost curve, I mean, clearly we're talking about much, much larger capital, right? As I was saying, it's typically, you're not essentially converting infrastructure, you're building infrastructure. Um, so again, that capital element is is massively impacting the economics, and so slight changes in the work uh, will then, you know, dramatically essentially worsen the economic of your projects, right? And so the more certainty you can have in that work, the more you can lower that work, so whether it's country risk, in fact, and obviously, uh, you know, all the essentially certainty in the, in- in the incentive structure. So you know, definitely not building massive infrastructure on the basis of, for instance, a price that might vary or you know policy that might waver in a couple of years, right? You might build up uh, you know CNG on that basis, but you won't deploy infrastructure. So that that's you know one of the key key elements uh, for I would say, especially for CC US or in fact. as well for hydrogen, but also, you know, why you're seeing in, you know, s- such difficulty to curb the flaring element in countries um, such as Iraq and others, right? So anything, you know, that will impact the work in, in those capital projects is is really needs to be taken into control. I think on the left-hand side of uh, the macro. I mean, nevertheless, I think going back to the IRA, I'm pretty excited because and I mean, and that's that's nothing compared to the excitement of the investors, frankly, because you're really looking at a, a layered cake, right? So essentially, you know, you have the IRA, and then you can have the LCFS, and then you have the IRA for renewable, but you also have the IRA for hydrogen. And essentially, frankly, the tax credit kind of pile up and up. And uh, and if you look at, uh, for instance, clean hydrogen, like green hydrogen in this context, but actually also blue hydrogen in this context. You're looking at a negative cost uh, in California so you know obviously I think there's a lot of people that are gonna take out their wallets um, and th- that's very exciting I think more globally for instance on the methane thing uh, you know it, there's definitely no reason to be excited about the high uh, natural gas price I mean it, it's a tra- tragedy but in the in the framework of methane and flaring you know we are seeing now about forty five BCM globally of methane that could be essentially recovered from flaring or from uh, leaks etc that can be maintained and put into the global market at NPB positive price um one of the big big elements here is really the speed right so if you kick off a project in 2023 it's going to be or in 2026 2026 would be 50 percent it would be 50 percent uh, less revenue given the, the gas price uh, forecast that we have right now. So we are really looking at an acceleration of these projects or hoping for one. And we think the, the, the cops are probably going to lead the way you know, in those discussions as well.
0: Great. So I think we've covered some of the, well, we've tried to answer that question. What can help accelerate some of these initiatives? And I, you know, I've written down the, the, the price signals uh, or, or clarity around the the, Clarity around market and pricing, if I think about nature-based solutions and decarbonisation as well, the uh, incentives like you would get from a, the IRA type uh, policies and um, scale of projects, of course, uh, as well. Oh, I and, think
3: I would add as well, the, the I would say the conversion of reporting to measurements in, uh, in the, the context of yeah. methane. That's going yeah, to-
0: methane as well. A special, a special case there's there's more to talk about on that. I think we just have a couple of minutes. Um, so why don't we just from each of you maybe we've got Sarah Week coming up, as we all know, uh, the second week of March, sixth of March, and it's always a great place to you know to look for signposts to think about the direction and the future of the industry. If you could pick a couple, if you could each pick a couple of signposts that you'll be looking out for. In your areas, to give you a sense of how fast and how quickly the transition uh, is moving for the energy sector, Kevin, why don't you give us a couple of your thoughts, and then we'll then we'll go around to you, age and then Eleanor, just quickly.
1: Sure. A caveat, because it, it does move fast, so my signposts may be pretty quick. But things I'm I'm watching for, I, I break into three buckets: technology, markets, and policy. I think on the technology side, I'm looking to see this pace and scale of large scale investments in methane be- abatement strategies, and I think carbon capture and storage, and the scale and ramp up of those kinds of things, mostly on the CCS, which would be a signal of the larger scale kind of industrial decarbonization projects. Uh, on the markets, I'm really curious to watch um, how the market participants will seek to incorporate emissions and de-risk uh, the transition. You know, once you incorporate emissions, you can make business decisions around it. Uh, what kind of tools the financial institutions are looking towards? Transparency around estimation, um, how governments are trying to uh, help improve that transparency and confidence in those emission metrics as well. And then then on the policy front, I think policy still remains incredibly critical. I'm looking to see what the rest of the world does really in response to the US and the IRA. Um, I want to see how it's going to stimulate the industry in the United States, but what will the rest of the world do? Because I think the United States was rapidly gone from, I'd say, a kind of in the backseat on the policy front to the front to the leader on the policy front so a lot of other nations are probably going to be looking very hard at that and wondering if they have to up their game as well
0: great technology markets and policy that covers a lot a lot of sins uh, kevin Um, uasia nature-based solutions maybe you talked about already just what would be your your kind of big signals you're looking for uh, next march
2: yeah, so I, I was just quickly jotting down three things um, I can think of. So uh, the, the the two initiatives that I talked about, the ICVCM and ECMI, in order to just really shape up the voluntary carbon market so that you can scale up carbon finance coming from the private sector into nature-based solutions, that's a really important one to watch out for, how quickly it gets uh, gains traction, uh, what's the buy-in and, and spread of those rules. Um, the second one I jotted down was actually um, in terms of countries and how they, uh, various countries come on board with respect to the NDCs and how much um, they will make their nature-based um, credits available for sale, because that's a, that's a big supply-side um, issue when you look at um, you know, forestry and all of those natural uh, assets. A lot of them are in the global south, and so these countries' NDCs will be one to watch for. And the last thing I'll say is that um, there's a trend amongst companies that are trying to build in in-house capability and expand their own expertise and understanding of nature-based solutions. Um, you know, just hiring ecologists and biologists and people who work in development uh, issues, those, those things are something that we're beginning to see, trying to take control of that process, and also collaboration with nonprofits, academia. So, you know, institutions that traditionally have been a bit far away from our traditional business lines. So we're likely to see a lot more of that.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, so lots to look for there as well then. And um, uh, Eleanor, final thoughts from you on the quickly two or three things maybe you're looking for?
3: I think a lot has been listed. But yeah, again, like a lot of the the seeds I would say have been planted recently by, you know, the the US or by the European markets. But uh, I want to see Essentially, conversion from MOUs then to FIDs uh, by CERI, and see how many of those happen. As as Kevin was saying, throughout the macro, um, I want to see also a little bit more the how this is going to be done. Right. So essentially, uh, there's still a lot of question in my mind, especially around coordination of all this happening. So even at the U.S. level, like you know, you need a lot more coordination than what has been happening between you know city, state. Um, and federal, uh, and also across countries, right? And so how are they going to work together on all this, um, especially yeah. given we're looking at completely new trade fields? So I'm, I'm very keen on and, and looking at how this might be shaped by theory. Yeah.
0: that's no, it, OK, it's still early days in a way. Still a lot of detail to work out to really get it to work. So lots to, to look for. Um, well, great. Look, this is a big topic and I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about it in some of the details as we go as we go forward in the coming months. Um, so it just leaves me to say at this stage, thanks to Kevin, Eleanor and New Asia for your, your contributions, the great discussion today. As I said, the start of more discussions, I think. And to say thank you for everyone for joining us on this CIRA Week Conversations presented by S&P Global. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.